Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and what a joy it is to be joined today by Maeve Higgins. She's a contributing writer for the New York Times and a former comedian, a former, huh? <laughs> who, prefer, who performed all over the world. She starred in the multi-award winning movie, Extraordinary, and hosts a climate justice podcast with Mary Robinson entitled Mothers of Invention. Her latest essay collection is called Tell Everyone on This Train, I Love Them. Welcome, Maeve. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah. It's funny, it's funny to see you like, or hear you like read out my bio. That's like so wacky. <laughs> <laughs> and it's changed a lot recently. <gasps> yeah. In fact, now I'm a columnist with The Guardian and the Guardian US and also like I'm back on stage I don't know what's wrong with me I was like I need to stop being a comedian I've been saying that for 10 years and and then the pandemic like forced us all to stop yeah. obviously yeah. every performer you know every stage went dark and so I was like okay well this is my way out but I'm back again <laughs> back up there slinging right? my jokes <laughs> I love it and I love just the the genre of America through the lens of Maeve <laughs> and uh, genre the genre um yeah I'd call it that and I I'm wondering if this time around this essay collection above and beyond the things you usually talk about you do spend some time talking about how the pandemic really exposed even more of our flaws than normal <laughs> I know yeah I mean I'm you know not the most original in recognizing that I think if anything you know moving here I guess like when I moved here Obama was president and you know yeah. things were just so wildly different and then you know I wrote a book of essays that was questioning you know my immigration experience with against others and kind of realizing all the little cracks that were in the immigration system and in you know the foundations um and then I wrote this book you know over the last four years which have been you know may you live in interesting times yeah, sure. like I feel like you know probably whenever we were alive you know we're like people who try and understand the moment and but like so I'm sure whenever we were alive, we'd be like, this is interesting. Like we're in history, but like, we're really in history. We sure are. Um, in these I, years, like my goodness. I hope they'll be talking about us in 100 years because it was so wildly um, disparate from, from what people know. <laughs> yeah. I hope so too. I hope, I hope they'd be like, yeah, and things almost really ground to a halt. But then, <laughs> but then these these female writers stepped yes. in. <laughs> they saved us with their essays and their podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love it. Um, I like how in this collection you have plenty of really funny personal essays. And then there are the more serious reported pieces and you still manage to get moments of levity in there that are so particularly you. 
tell me a little bit about how you do it because I know that it's difficult and I've seen it done poorly <laughs> more times than I can count. Yeah, it's um. Well, I would love to hear from you what those you know failed attempts are. No, I know them well myself. I've had enough of those myself too. And like, I think um something that's really you know good about writing a book is the time you get. Like it's it's a bit frustrating because everything you're just like working on this invisible project for for months and months, and you know it comes out a year after you've submitted it. It's slow in that way, but in another way you can really work to get the tone right and to get it how you want it. Whether or not that's good or not is not really my business, but it's how I want it and how I, you know, um, imagined it and worked to get it to that point. But I think, yeah, with your your question about like levity and seriousness, um, I think that's a really important you know, I don't really enjoy one without the other anymore. I think I've gone through phases of just being very serious and like taking mm. myself very seriously and being kind of intense. And then I've gone through other phases where I was like, no, none of this. Like I want pure silliness and pure escapism. So trying to get that balance right, I think is, it makes for good writing, but it also makes for a more honest um, portrayal of, um, or examination of like whatever the subject is and so like things like you know um, mental health or the you know the immigration system in the U.S. or something both of those things are are um, you know very serious and at the same time there's lightness in there if you uh, if you if you do it right I think and if you um, if you're honest yeah. And like, I mean, you get this, you have to get this all the time because I actually think with nonfiction, it happens, but with fiction, it really happens where the more, the sadder and the more serious than like the more respected it is. Oh something. yeah. I mean, and, and that's just, like in film too, comedies get less respect yeah. than, uh, your, your serious Oscar bait. <laughs> yeah. You know, these adjectives, like unrelenting or (laughs) I was ruined by the end of this but you know people just love that and like people and it gets so um it just gets taken more seriously if if you're like sad and serious people think you're smarter than if you're funny and I just disagree with that like I just don't think that's correct that is wrong (laughs) that's wrong (laughs) (laughs) and it's funny you you brought up mental health one of the standouts in this collection is an essay you wrote about mental health and like being afraid as I think so many of us are who've who've I was gonna say who who've Mm. had their anxiety or depression overtake them yeah Um, that's a good idea that like you can just one day lose control of it like you can literally just stop one day and lose your mind Mm -hmm. and the story of what happened to you is um turns out to be very goofy (laughs) yes but also mm -hmm. I felt for you to tell why don't you explain a little bit about what happened so I thought that that was what was happening to me 
I think, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Your anxiety, your depression overtaking you. Um, I basically have lived in fear of that, like since I was a teenager, since I started to, you know, I mean, I guess I didn't get diagnosed until I was 18, but I certainly have had symptoms of both of those things, you know, since I was about 14. Um, and, you know, I feel like I have this kind of fragile brain that I have to work with and I do all the things, marathon therapy, medication, and, you know, um, but it's still, it's still always there, right? Like what if this snaps and, and if I go under, um, and what happened to me was, first of all, it happened in paper source, which is <laughs> that really That's inherently funny. Cutesy shop <laughs> um, with like, I don't know, greeting cards. And anyway, I was in there and I started to feel like odd and I started to feel physically weird, but definitely like mentally very strange. Um, and I thought I ha- was having a, a break, you know, like a... a <laughs> mental health episode um because everything started you know I was feeling very paranoid my heart was racing and I thought oh this is it it's happening that line from Emily Dickinson and then a plank in reason broke was just like echoing around my mind and it turned out you know that wasn't the cause the cause was I had eaten an entire box of weed candy and was tripping but like I didn't know that so I just assumed you know the worst because I am an anxious person um and I spent eight hours uh you know completely separate from myself like completely tripping and um then left with this strange kind of guilty feeling of you know, not being able to control what I did with, you know, like it was just a, such a strange time. And I was really lucky because I got to have that experience, um, but still be okay. You know, I was, I was, I was fine. Um, but yeah, it just made me think about, I suppose, like the, the furthest parts of my brain and like what, <laughs> what was me and what wasn't me. And like, um, and it just was kind of, um, it's so interesting because now that happened to me three years ago. It was actually kind of hard to write about, even though, like you said, it's such a goofy story. Almost everybody now has a story of like they eat ate too many edibles because mm-hmm. it's just that time in the world where like they're kind of coming out and and they're also still quite unpredictable. And um, but yeah, for me, it was just like a glimpse into um, my fears um, and And I wonder too about like, um, yeah, I just wonder like if I'd love to be able to just like have an edible and feel calm. Me too. How it it works for some people or they're just like, yeah, I watch a movie and then I go to sleep. And I'm just like, oh, well, how lovely for you. Because for me, it's a fucking nightmare. It's like absolutely, I do everything in my power, like not to feel like I've got TCH in my system all the time. You, you brought up in the essay, the experience of kind of losing time, losing the sense of how much time things are taking. And I hadn't actually considered that that's what was happening that was like, especially making me anxious. And so thank you for, for naming. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just kind of, um, yeah, it, it's never gonna be my drug. <laughs> I know, because since then, because obviously, 
it, any drug, if you like overdose on it, it you're going to have a bad experience. Yeah. But like at the same time, I've since tried it a couple of times, like you're mm-hmm. the right, I, I ate 80 milligrams of THC. You're supposed to have like five milligrams. So like right. I've tried five and I've still just gotten this kind of little worried voice that's always there anyway that's just like gotten louder and more insistent I'm like this is not fun for me (laughs) certainly certainly you don't have to take medication to get there (laughs) feel it stronger (laughs) yeah I don't know what our ideal drug is I mean like I also (laughs) feel like cocaine is just that's I don't need that you know like yeah I don't need that my god (laughs) speed no I don't need that either I know I, I, I am very fascinated by people who, who do seem to uh, thrive. <laughs> and, and so many do. And like people, you know, it helps them with their depression is another thing. Whereas I'm just like, yeah. oh my God, how? I mean, you know, I like a drink actually, but that's a depressant. So it's like, I feel great. I always know, you know, when I'm like, get, I have a buzz because I always think, <laughs> that was really interesting what you just said (laughs) and that's when I'm like okay you've maybe had like too many Negronis you should shut up now but I but again alcohol so I think that would be my drug of choice but again that is actually a depressant and the next day I start questioning everything and then I'm like well then that's no fun if it's going to lead to this so many consequences so the whole (laughs) (laughs) Um, you should start a new podcast called you made your choice you made your choice (laughs) talk to me a little bit about the week when the pandemic was really starting to feel like something ominous was happening and you attended the 2020 border security expo Yes, which was in San Antonio in Texas. I kept waiting for that to be cancelled. I'm sure everyone remembers the early part of March where it was kind of like, in fact, there was like a big booksellers convention the week beforehand in the same um, auditorium. It's like this massive, you know, uh, convention center. Yeah. And they they cancelled. The booksellers cancelled because they're (laughs) responsible and then the following week, I kept thinking, OK, this is like the Department of Homeland Security. They're, they're going to cancel. They literally had people in. Is it was it New Rochelle where the first cases hit New York? Ooh, and yeah. they had people up the, the DHS had people up there in hazmat suits, you know, like trailing after this one poor man who had COVID, the, one of the first cases. Anyway, they went ahead with a the conference. There was like no distancing, no masking, anything. And it was a big um it's basically an industry event and a government event, which straight away is a problem. <laughs> and it's where like they, you know, uh, I guess buy stuff that they need for the Southern border. There's no mention of the Canadian border. Um, and it was all about, you know, different, there was like tons of weapons there. There was tons of you know, drones, dog kennels, different types of walls that would like guarantee you would fall fall from. And um, and that was kind of in the sales area. And then there was, um, you know, the big conference that happened inside with a number of panels all talking about national security and about like the problem of migration. Um, and so I went there to cover it, you know, it's like to write about it. And uh, it just so happened that it was <laughs> like, 
that at the gates of America at that time, there was this huge monster, which is COVID, which has now killed 900,000 people. Meanwhile, all of these, all of these men, and they really were, it's, it's the most male dominated of all the federal agencies, CBP mm-hmm. and ICE. Um, all these men were absolutely fixated on the idea of like, what are we going to do with these like migrants on the Southern border? How dangerous they are and how can we keep them out? This is only like the year after Trump had been, you know, the Trump administration had been taking children away from their parents. So it was just a very strange, unsettling thing to do or thing to witness in the week, in those weeks. And I think about I, I mean, I covered it. I was, I stayed for the whole conference. I left before they have like a shooting competition on the last day, which I was going to go to. <laughs> I was like, I'm good. Um, I had already witnessed like um, the Customs and Border Patrol, like raffling off a homemade rifle in the Alamo. Like it's so, so rife with symbolism. It's, it's not even symbolism at that point. It's like actual literal, they're like selling guns they made, you know metaphors Um, right awful so anyway that really shook me and I thought like okay this is where I live like this is the actual government and this is how they're behaving when I think something really bad is about to happen um and so yeah I left even though I consider myself a New Yorker I've lived here for many years but I came back from that conference and I, I flew back to Ireland two days later and I you know I stayed there for the for the worst of the pandemic um because I really you know I, I also I guess was it was like a, a strange bridge between you know I, I was studying migration policy and I was um learning a ton about it and and especially about this militarization of the border and this massive industry that's around um deterrence and detention and then I I saw it and then I felt the impacts of it you know like it was like this bridge between like intellectual and actually oh I'm experiencing this and then of course I was locked out of America right because I left and I and the travel bans came down and so I couldn't get back in so it was like it was like a very real time for me (laughs) like for so many of us in in different ways that the pandemic did reveal um you know things that's that not all of us had experienced before yeah One of the things that really stuck out to me was the panelist who referred to juvenile aliens. Yeah, because you kind of forget when you're sitting there listening to, you know, government officials or and often even reporters, like just the way we use language is so sanitized. And, you know, yeah, I was taking notes and not I was like taking notes, but not fully paying attention. And then I heard someone on the panel talking about juvenile aliens and getting their uh, DNA and to match them. And I was just thinking, wait, like juvenile aliens, like he means like little children who are not American. That's what that means. And that's what he's sitting up there in like a uniform discussing like how to best like deal with them. And I think that, you know, that is a preoccupation of mine like language around making things sound like less violent than they are um and I I miss that stuff all the time like I think you know I like I think it's it's not like it happens by accident but it just becomes so normal because like 
uh, actually under the Trump administration, they inserted the word aliens everywhere they could because like it's helpful to to stop thinking about people as people and to start thinking of them as aliens. It's like the oldest trick in the book, you of know. Of course. Um, and then, so, but it's still, you kind of just forget or you're just like in the, in the mode. And I found that with a few things that I touched on in the book, like calling people aliens and also like the term climate change yeah. really bothers me because it's just so clean and sort of vague at the same time, change, climate, you know? And, and you, um, you, t- yeah. you talk about Frank Luntz and um, how he made, a, a, like it was a really conscious decision to say like, we need to sanitize this. Yeah. We that's, need to make sure people it. aren't too upset about it. He was paid money, you know, a, a Republican strategist. He wrote a memo back when it was George W. Bush was president. And he said, we need to stop saying global warming. It's too scary. People get it. Like people understand what that is and it's really bad for business. So like, let's call it climate change. And and then it was documented that like George W. Bush stopped using global warming and started saying climate change and the Republicans are so organized and so, you know, good at that. And so then we all started saying climate change mm-hmm. and it really does ease up the, the kind of reality um, of the situation for a while. I mean, it's not working now, is it? No, sure. Isn't. We know exactly as people drowning in their apartments in New York, like it's very real now, but he did that. And it was, it's so effective. Like that's the thing, like that words are so, I mean, it sounds like such a clear, but that words are very powerful they're kind of all we have often if we're not experiencing them directly so yeah I mean he's still knocking around like Frank Luntz is like a tv talking head now and he since since then actually his home was threatened by one of the fires that came close to LA and he tried to take it back like years later he was like actually hey I'm the one who came up with the term climate change but like I need to we need to take it more seriously and it's like it's too late man (laughs) like with just because it might affect you now like just yeah so it's it's frustrating I think it's like it's fun to write about though because you can sort of track back when did something happen and you can try and understand a bit better like how we got into this mess (laughs) yeah and and you you mentioned braiding sweetgrass in this in this essay which um is so interesting to me in terms of the I think you call it the grammar of animacy Mm. that if we give that if we have more verbs in our language well you tell me you tell me yeah so it's Robin Kimmerer in fact I don't know if if she was a guest in your podcast the the book has been around for a while but it continues to sell you know it's like been on On the the bestsellers list yeah Mm yeah um because people really need to and, and want to, um, you know, understand our relationship with nature. And even there, I'm distancing it. We are nature, you know. Right. But anyway, Robin Kimmer is this incredible writer and scientist and indigenous um, expert on language. And she, she uh, I guess, speaks Potawatomi. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Um, where they have a ton of verbs instead of, you know, we have all these nouns that kind of separate us from um, everything around us. Uh, whereas, like, I think the example, one example she uses is like a lake, but you can, uh, like, you can 
a lake as a verb, not like a lake as a thing that we do something to. You know, a lake is already animate and a lake does what a lake does. And um, it's really hard because we don't really do that in English. And not only do we not do that, again, there's all these very deliberate um, obfuscations. So think about how we might call cows livestock, you know, or call trees um I don't know material or wood you know Mm -hmm. um instead of instead of just calling them like trees or cows (laughs) so that we get we we so that when we you know are violent it doesn't seem as bad so I mean I just scratched the surface which is also why I in that essay I just wanted to directly quote like Robin Kimmerer and I wanted to directly just lead people to other resources because I'm only barely beginning to understand myself this stuff um and that's why I love like I just there's this like big there's a lot of nihilism as you know and maybe in the world I'm in like in I don't know like media comedy it's like kind of the status quo is to be um kind of like hopeless like well we've only got 10 years anyway yeah but actually there's all this other huge there's a huge push for um taking action and understanding things better and getting you know just improving our relationship with each other and with the planet that that that's that's common loads of people feel that way you know um so I like kind of just pointing out well here's the way to do that and here's the person who's been doing that forever and Mm -hmm. um that was important to me you know and, and I feel like it ties into the next essay in the collection so well called The Innocence, in which you say, like, we should have lost our collective innocence many, many, many times. There have been many disasters, many tragedies, many examples of people being evil. Yeah. And yet there, there's a segment of Americans who are shiny and happy. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the idea of American innocence and, and I suppose, you know, it, what that is, is white innocence. Right. And um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I got it's again, this is not anything new that I'm saying. And, it, and it's very, um, you know, it's very, uh, it was very fun to write that piece because I wrote about it through 90 day fiance, which is, you know, the best show in the world. (laughs) And and I think that's like a good example of this kind of American exceptionalism that like, yeah, like you mentioned, I mean, it's kind of a horrible checklist, but like you could say like the Vietnam war should have made America realize that like, you know, or the way, um, reconstruction was shot down like that should have made america realize 9-11 that should have made america realize you know that like maybe the way america is structured is not the healthiest (laughs) but there's still this idea this american exceptionalism that like somehow doesn't understand the impact america has on the world while also holding themselves as like the most important country in the world like it's so baffling to, to tons of Americans and also obviously to, to immigrants like myself. Um, and yeah, with 90 Day Fiance, you just like see that playing out in the most fun, <laughs> crazy way <laughs> where, where um, 
I mean, I know this is how you met your husband, obviously. And you yes, know, indeed. The yes. best contestants on that show. Yes. Pure chaos. Maris and Josh. <laughs> <Pure> chaos. <laughs> Josh coming Threatening to call immigration on, on a... <laughs> constantly threatening to call immigration on Josh (laughs) and Um, then you use that to to talk about the requirements to immigrate into to our America mm -hmm. and what you have to know and what you can ignore right if I have not done, so there's a citizenship test that you have to do, which I haven't done because I'm not a citizen and I'm not, you know, on that path, but, um, yeah, just before Trump left office, he proposed like additional questions to this test, which is already pretty hard. I mean, you know, famously, it's like, you could ask an American all of these questions and they would not be able to tell you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and certainly like, even elected officials like I think I mentioned in the piece that like Tommy Tuberville who's a senator um you know didn't know about the different branches of the federal government and like things that you're things that you need to know to pass this this citizenship test and some of them are kind of vague it's like name an American invention and then others are like you know what's who's Hamilton or <laughs> like um and uh I just like the the real interesting parts of America for me, like having lived here for many years, like are are not those parts. Right. Like there's like huge chunks of history, which, again, you know, when I was in San Antonio, when I was started like absorbing all of that violence that is still that still happens at the southern border, American violence, you know, I was thinking like this used to be Mexico, like just a few hundred years ago it's not even that long ago like this country is so young and this like literally was Mexico you know see see how um you know mainland U.S. treats Puerto Rico and like all of this the things that I have learned while I've been here and also Marys I'm aware that I I might sound just like I don't know like an 18 year old or something who's like come home at Thanksgiving and suddenly has all these opinions (laughs) like and I don't want to be like so rude either. Like I love living here. Like my life here is so um, only possible here. Like I still get that experience that actually I think a lot of Americans don't have, but I think my immigrants can get that we get to come here and have opportunities that we don't have at home. Um, so all this to say, like I choose to be here for a reason and it's like my favorite place. Um, but I do think there's so much hidden here and there's so much, um, and like not even hidden that well. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, I, again, this is something we all know, but Mm -hmm. Thanksgiving, we need more holidays that are based on food that aren't (laughs) overtly racist and terrible. Um, also last night I was talking to Alison Levy who's a really great comic who you probably know yes and she was just like telling me about some Jewish holiday that's a food holiday well that's how she described it to me (laughs) it's just latkes and like different types of smoked fish oh yeah latkes is uh is Passover oh it's in Passover yeah because you know she was just saying 
that's how she described it to me like the food she went into great detail and I was so thrilled and she even got caviar and I thought she meant like the delivery service she was like no I got caviar it's like a special (laughs) Jewish holiday and I was like oh my god so like maybe we could get that to go more mainstream Passover Passover is it sad though is it yeah Um, no it's about perseverance Mm -hmm. um you're fading already the only the only problem is you can't eat leavened bread oh so if you have that crackers you have to eat crackers yeah 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 but I mean to me that sounds a little bit better than Thanksgiving where it's like they put marshmallows in the potato you know like that's like upsetting to me like sweet potatoes at marshmallow like I'm fine with crackers you know especially if there's like smoked fish to go with them mm. but yeah I don't want to just like come on your podcast and start to um steal all the Jewish holidays and force you into <laughs> <laughs> making them popular especially if they've got like this tragic backstory <laughs> I think um I would one of the things I want to mention that I did I feel like I learned some things obviously from reading your book like again like these are things that we know, but it certainly helps to have an outsider's perspective, or these are things that I hope we know. Um, but one of the things that I really didn't know that I've been thinking about a lot lately is you talk about the definition of anarchy and that something as simple as mutual aid can be considered anarchist and that makes me feel cool (laughs) (laughs) well 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 there we have it she's a little anarchist sitting there (laughs) (laughs) yeah well um the new york times had asked me to write this piece when like um new york was like designated an anarchist jurisdiction i think in 2020 um which made us all laugh and you know like this city is actually like so orderly and you know heavily policed <laughs> it was just like yeah. it's kind of a funny idea but um it made uh, uh made me they asked me to write that so I started looking into like well what is anarchism and actually I found tons of examples of anarchic behavior it was just not not what I had believed anarchy was which I had this silly idea that it was you know chaos agents and that it was um kind of like aggressive breaking of norms that's 90 day fiance (laughs) exactly the most mainstream thing ever that's the real like that is the real you know gosh we're in a mess now this is (laughs) everyone is so out of control but actually like anarchic impulses are very community driven and they are things like mutual aid and so I was um, talking about the original definitions of anarchy, this um, really great Russian man, Peter Kropotkin or Kratopkin. I cannot remember which one it is. Um, It was recently his birthday, actually. I mean, he's long dead. But anyway, he was um, the godfather of anarchy. And, you know, basically what it is, is like you're relying on one another um, in ways that like they might surprise you like the way that they came up for me was uh this comic Jordan Jordan Temple I don't know if you know him but he um 
I remember I saw on Instagram, like he had paid for a hundred haircuts for like kids in his old neighborhood. And those people doing like coat drives and uh, these like free libraries that pop up or food banks or um, community pantries, like, you know, stuff that you kind of, I don't know, you might not think it's anarchy, but actually it is. And it's very empowering when you do, because I think feeling helpless is, um, is usually like kind of, you know, I, I get it, but I think it's like a learned thing. Um, and often we're more powerful than we realize. And I think that kind of, you know, was what showed up like especially in the last couple of years like definitely in my neighborhood and I think around New York was like oh actually I can actually offer help to this person and in return like get help from them and like just not be so extractive from the city um but it's just uh again it's language and how it gets kind of co-opted and how it gets uh changed around to fit um the status quo when actually I think a lot of us and like you would never self-identify as an anarchist not you specifically but like tons of people who are you know like they're like I don't know they work in the corporate world or they do this but they also volunteer or they like check in with people or they and that's you know that's anarchy baby (laughs) thank you for reclaiming it before we go tell me about some books you've been reading okay this one actually you know how we were talking about seriousness and comedy like I wrote about that for Lit Hub and then this woman um tweeted at me Alexandra Zabruder and she was like you're right she put together this um book it's called Salvaged Pages Young Writers Diaries of the Holocaust and it's all these incredible children and teenagers and it's their it's their diaries um from the 1930s and 40s uh throughout Europe and you know they're devastating they're frightening and there's also some really really funny parts like this one kid who's like today is Hitler's birthday that asshole (laughs) it's just so it's beautiful so I was thrilled to get this I also um this is like a big topic to get into but but we don't have to but I guess I'm getting like increasingly creeped out by like so much entertainment about like the holocaust and me too Maeve yeah well there's like I I like to call it um holocaust romance which is a genre of book that usually features a woman in period costume or costume a woman in period clothing looking with their back to the to the reader looking off in the distance and seeing what what world war ii has wrought so gross so it. yeah so like I read uh Ellie Wiesel Knight and I was like oh this is what I this is who I want to hear about you know the holocaust from like actual people and, and past that like people who were there or mm-hmm. who survived it or scholars but like I don't want to it's just so gross to me anyway it's like I, I I can't really define it but I'm glad that you said that and also that's like so chilling but there's like a romance genre okay so so this is kids who were writing back then and diary extracts and it's beautiful um 
then the second and I think last book I have is the Chinese question, the gold rushes and global politics. Mei Nai is this unbelievable historian who I, um, a lot of her research like helped me with the book and I've read, you know, almost everything she's written. This book just came out last year and it's so incredible. It's about um, Chinese migration and how they, the Chinese worked in these different uh, gold fields, like in three different parts of the world, like here in the US and in other sure. parts too. Um, and she's a fabulous writer. So she's like a historian, but, uh, and a really fabulous writer. And it's just so well told. And again, like not, I don't think not, um, not talked about enough. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I like that voice. That yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Maeve this has been so wonderful I could talk to you for hours longer but we'll do that off off mic yes please I can't wait to see you yeah thanks for today Maris thanks Maeve thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today and please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts